Let's take a look at covenants. And let me just give you an overview of the covenants of the Bible so you can put the Abrahamic covenant in its context. We looked at the Noahic, and we said it also was unconditional. So the only one that signed the Noahic covenant is God himself. Noah did not have a line to sign on. So there are such a thing as an unconditional covenant. Most covenants, obviously, bind two parties, but when uh, God is involved and the covenants of the Bible, many of them are unconditional. We're looking at the Abrahamic covenant, which we've also mentioned is also unconditional, and I'm using the imagery of an umbrella here, because God is going to renew the covenant in different ways through through history, and he's going to renew different aspects. In fact, those three aspects that we've already looked at. The aspect pertaining to what? Number one, seed. Two, land. Blessing. Those are going to be renewed. Now, the seed covenant, we have the land covenant and the blessing. Then there's the Mosaic covenant, which we'll discuss again. This one is very different from the Abrahamic. The Mosaic is conditional. It's conditional on how the children of Israel live, basically. They agreed to it. We'll look at that when we talk about the law. In fact, we'll come back and look at the Mosaic Covenant. But it is conditional. The Abrahamic is unconditional. And the land kind of overlaps over the mosaic here. There are some conditional aspects to that dealing with the land. That covenant is called Palestinian covenant by theologians. And it's essentially in Deuteronomy. I think it starts in 27. It certainly includes 28 and 29 and 30, I believe. It's an expansion, if you will, of the Abrahamic covenant relating to the land, but the Palestinian covenant is also kind of a subset of the Mosaic covenant, which makes it both unconditional, and when we say it's unconditional, we mean that ultimately Israel will end up in the land. In other words, the land will be totally fulfilled to the full extent that I gave you the boundaries to. No matter what happens, no matter whether Iran develops a nuclear weapon, no matter whether the Arabs try to do another war, in spite of Obama, the land is assured and it will be future. Okay? They occupy a very tiny bit of what is promised. This is assured by the Palestinian, and it's unconditional in that sense. Now, it's also conditional in the sense that what is promised there is if the children of Israel, remember in Deuteronomy they're not a nation yet, but they will become a nation, God says that if you obey me, I will bless you. So, Deuteronomy 28, you have all the blessings, but if you disobey, you also have what? Curses. And those blessings and curses have worked themselves out historically, where God actually fulfilled what he said in the Palestinian covenant. So it's conditional in that if the children of Israel do not obey, then there are consequences. But that doesn't mean that they will forever lose the land. That's the 
unconditional aspect. Eventually, they will occupy the full extent of the land. So, as a result, historically, when they were disobedient as a kingdom, what happened to the nation of Israel? They were kicked out of the land. They went into captivity, as Marcy says, by the Babylonians. So, they were in captivity for 70 years. But God brought them back. And during the time of Christ, they were in the land. They weren't anywhere near the full extent of the land then. And when they rejected Messiah, what happened? And what happened in a particular specific date? Yeah, 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. They were cast out of the land again. Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were scattered amongst the nations for 2,000 years. And that's why I say in 1948, it's amazing that uh, God preserved the same people. There's never been anybody who's been cast out of their land that have preserved their identity except the nation of Israel. Was there any of your studies of covenants and other type of prophecies? Was there any, ever any indication that somewhere around? No. 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 No, it, there are two phases. There, there are two phases. Uh, there's, what, what is it, Ezekiel 37? I think there's two phases. The, the dry bones, the vision of the dry bones, there's two phases to it. They're in phase one. Yeah, bones, flesh and bones, the flesh comes back to the bones. That's the physical material regathering. They're in the physical material regathering. After, if you put all prophecy together, after the rapture, during that seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week, they'll experience the uh, spiritual revival or the spiritual regathering. Yeah, that's future. But... Palestinian deals with the land aspect, and I said it's both unconditional and conditional. The seed element deals with the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant specifies that ultimately the seed will eventuate in the Messiah, the ultimate king. So it kind of gives more specifics and more detail to the seed promise, and that is unconditional. Now, there's some conditional aspects in terms of kings being disciplined. So you might say it has a few conditional aspects. But overall, no matter what happens, Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to fulfill everything that Scripture tells us that Messiah is going to do. And the blessing aspect is what's called the new covenant. This is after Israel has failed. This is... Some of it is given on the verge of them being taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and some aspects of it are revealed after they're actually in the captivity. So this is after the nation has totally failed. What God is reassuring them is that he is still going to bless them, and they will still be a blessing. Now, the new covenant will not be fulfilled. In fact, none of these covenants will be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom in that Messiah will rule. He will reign. When he came the first time, he did not reign. He did not rule. He died. The New Covenant will ultimately be fulfilled in the the, uh, Millennial Kingdom or possibly shortly before. It might happen during the Great Tribulation when Israel will receive all of the benefits of the New Covenant. Now, there's a little problem here in that We enjoy the benefits of the New Covenant. In fact, the New Testament is New Covenant. By virtue of us being related to Israel's Messiah, 
we enjoy benefits. We are not parties to the new covenant. It's very clear in uh, Jeremiah that the parties of the covenant are Israel and Judah. And it says Israel and Judah is because they were divided. But they will be regathered and rejoined. And they are the parties to the new covenant. So it's a Jewish covenant. We enter, and I think the book of Hebrews makes it clear, when I taught on it in the book of Hebrews, I tried to explain all of that. What is it? Chapter 6, I believe. So the new covenant, we enjoy the benefits, and Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse. And as a result of us trusting in Israel's Messiah, we enjoy right now some of the benefits of the new covenant. But in terms of its fulfillment, it is awaiting Israel in the land, and part of it is regeneration of the nation of Israel. That's a new covenant. Make sense? So these are all of the covenants of the Bible in their relationship to one another. Any questions on that? Got it? Pretty simple. So this leads us to another foundational area, the, the foundation of Israel, which is one of the main themes of all of the Bible. Israel is at the center of God's overall plan for all things. Can't forget that. And it begins with the Abrahamic covenant. Secondly, obviously it's initiated by God as everything that we've been dealing with comes first from him. He initiates the Abrahamic covenant. Right alongside of that, number three, it's founded on covenant. And now that you have a good understanding of covenant, it is legally binding. And since God is involved, there's no way that that covenant is not not going to be fulfilled. God is faithful. God keeps covenant, even though he doesn't even need to enter into covenant. But he has for assurance. Fifthly, I've said the... Nation of Israel through the Abrahamic covenant is the key to world history. You really cannot understand world history. You can understand a lot of detail and a lot of stuff and a lot of culture, but you really can't understand where what world history is all about in terms of its purpose, in, in terms of where it's headed, unless you have Israel at its center. Well, we have clearer revelation, our prophetic predictions and these how these covenants are going to work themselves out. But everything is keyed to Israel. So we need to stay an ally of Israel, or we are in serious trouble. As a, as a. Fifthly, it's through Israel that is the means by which God will bless the world. And the means by which God has already blessed the world. It is through Israel that Messiah comes, and the only way of salvation is through Messiah through Jesus Christ. Sixth, origin of Scripture. Number six is origin of Scripture and Messiah. It's through Scripture that we learn about and know Messiah. Scripture comes from the nation of Israel. Scripture is the means that God used to enlighten and to reveal his will, and that comes through the nation of Israel. Seven, Israel is at the center of the millennial kingdom. So that kind of outlines kind of the whole foundational nature of the nation of Israel. And the reason I'm giving it to you at this point is the rest of the Bible is going to deal with Israel, and beginning with the Abrahamic covenant, we have the 
the beginnings of the nation of Israel. So you can't overestimate how important Israel is. A lot of the church, historically, even today, is anti-Semitic. Mm, I don't know that he started it, but he, he tended towards that, yeah. That is unbiblical, based on this foundation. And based on scripture, this foundation comes out of scripture. So that's your foundation for the nation of Israel. Now back to the nations, let's add to that, now that we have uh, insight into the Abrahamic covenant. Number five, the nations will be blessed through Israel. So if a nation desires blessing from God, it has to align itself with Israel. It has to be sympathetic, it has to bless Israel. If it does not, it'll suffer consequences. So number one, the nations are rooted in God's purposes, not evolution. Number two, the result, the, the nations come about as a result of a judgment of God. It's not because of man's cleverness or culture. The nations are under the sovereignty of God. They're not independent. And the purpose for the nations is that they may have opportunity to seek God. They're not autonomous, even though they desire to be. And they're blessed through the nation of Israel. Sixthly, God uses the nations, and we'll see this as we go further into the Old Testament history, that God uses nations, sometimes particular nations, to discipline Israel. We've already mentioned a little bit of that. So this is part of what God will be doing with the nations. He will use them to discipline Israel. And every one of these nations that God uses to discipline Israel, eventually they get judged. And that was a dilemma of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. The dilemma, you know, he asked God, God, how can you use these people that are even more evil than we are to discipline us? And God gives him the answer, and he gives him the assurance that he will destroy the Babylonian Empire. So, when we look at Israel and that discipline, don't view it as persecution, even though that is persecution, but behind that is God disciplining his people. And sometimes harsh. This is holocausts. This is on the verge of extinctions, those uh, captivities. And number seven, we'll add to this as we get further. So there's some more foundation stones we can add. We've looked at the rejection, implications here, rejection of the world system, God's rejection of it. God introducing a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that lays out the parameters for the rest of world history. Let's take a look at an area that we can draw implications from what God is doing with Israel. And we can talk about this area called the doctrine of election. And the reason it's good to talk about it is I think the church on this is very confused as well. And it is, granted, it is a difficult doctrine. It's hard to accept, but I think it's a teaching of Scripture. And you see it, with, first of all, with Abraham. You can probably see the roots of it even before, but particularly with Abraham, because Abraham is chosen, not because of anything inherited in, in Abraham, but simply because God was going to have a plan that he was going to effect, and he chose to use Abraham. He could have chosen anyone else, but he chose Abraham. So let me give you a few points on the doctrine of election. First, we can see God's pattern, and let's look 
these up. I think we're back to you, Marcy. If you want to look at Romans 9, and uh, let's look at Joshua 24. You want to do that one, Mackenzie? And also Genesis 15, 7. You got it. And Connie, that's also Romans 9. We'll let you read that one. Marcy, you want to start us off? Romans 9, 7. Now, Romans 9, in fact, Romans 9 through 11 gives Paul's explanation concerning the nation of Israel. Chapters 1 through 8, he explains the doctrine of how you come into a relationship with God. How do you attain righteousness? Then the question is asked, well, what about Israel? Weren't they God's people? And he's going to deal with that and give a lot of teaching concerning the nation of Israel and how they fit in. And he's going to prophesy in chapter 11 that God's not finished with them, and in fact, he is going to basically bring salvation to them. He doesn't mention the New Covenant, but he's talking about the New Covenant there. You get it, Marsh? Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. Okay, that's key. You got that? Just because they are in the bloodline of Abraham does not mean that they are regenerated. In other words, they are not necessarily God's children. Keep reading. But through Isaac, your descendant, he And notice what he's doing here is he's contrasting. It's not through Ishmael that the promise comes. God selected through Isaac. So you have selection already. You get that? In other words, God choosing Isaac over Ishmael. And that's not all. Skip to verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Okay, read on so you find out who he's talking about. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, Jacob and Esau, twins. And in fact, Esau had the birthright. He came out first. But yet he was not God's choice, in spite of the shenanigans of the mother and Isaac himself. They plotted and they deceived and they basically robbed Esau of the birthright, and Esau willingly, as a sinner, and not the choice, the choice one, willingly gave up the birthright. But what he's talking about here, it's through Jacob. So God selects Jacob. God selects Abraham. God selects Isaac. God selects Jacob. God choosing amongst different options there. And what Joshua 24... 2 tells us, why don't you read it, it tells us it's not because of anything in Abraham. Abraham was a worshiper of false gods. It was God's calling Abraham to himself, God's choice, God's initiation. That's what the doctrine of election is all about. You want to read that one? Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Will not go your father's with his grace, and will not go they served other gods. Abraham, Terah, they were idolatrous people. But God, not because of anything in them, God chose to work through Abraham, and he chose to work through Jacob. Well, before that, Isaac, and then Jacob. So, in God's justice, he could reject all. There's none that deserve salvation. There's none that deserve selection. There are none that have any uh, demands upon God that are valid. All of sin fall short of the glory of God. Judgment could fall on any. But God has 
chosen to select some. So you have to keep this idea of total depravity when you think of election, because we get mixed up and we think, well, it seems almost unfair that God would choose some and not others. Now, if you want fairness, this is fairness. Fairness is God rejecting all. And it's grace that he selects any. He's not obligated, he's not under any obligation to select any. So you have to keep that in mind when you think of God choosing some. Because when you get to the New Testament, we have more added to this doctrine of election. This is the doctrine of election as it's illustrated in the Old Testament that I'm giving to you. But the Ephesians 1, 3, and include 4 passage where it talks about God choosing us before the foundations of the world, it's also clear that it's not because of anything in us. It's simply because God has chosen to select some because everyone should, uh, by God's justice, be rejected. I'm having trouble with that because you can't just leave it there. You know, God is also on missions. Yes. And he knew an eternity past. At some point in my life, I was going to believe in Jesus Christ. He knew that. Right. And he knew that Abraham was going to be somebody who would make that same decision. He said, give the right information. So yeah. What I, what I, on missions, he knows who is going to respond to him. Or you can't... I, I don't like just hearing leaving it right at that. Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a lot more to it. But the only ones that respond are those that God also works a work of drawing and calling, is what I would add to that as well. In other words, all of us would reject God, and God would be just in rejecting all of us. It's always God that takes the initiative, and I think the initiative begins with selection, with choosing, or the the doctrine of election. And I think once God has selected in, like, the Ephesians passage, eternity past, now the common doctrine on election is that God is omniscient and he sees ahead who's going to choose him, but that leaves it in man's hands. In other words, it leaves, in other words, God chooses me because I chose him. But I think Romans 9 makes it clear that it's not because of anything in Jacob or or Isaac, it's because of God's selection and Jacob and Isaac simply respond. And if you read the story of Jacob, Jacob was a scoundrel. God had to work, and he's not listed in the book of Hebrews until the very end of his life, basically on his deathbed, where he's a man of faith at that point. Most of his life is a life of deception. It's God working in individuals to draw them and uh, to put them and work sovereignly in such a way that they hear the gospel. And on hearing the gospel with God's work ahead of time, then we believe. But it's after God has already done a lot of work. Well, I think it's related, and it's related in the Ephesians passage because he talks about both in that context in verse 4. The predestinating part is that God puts us into the circum... In other words, he orchestrates history, he orchestrates events in our lives such that we have all of the circumstances to, to believe in him. And I think that is a work that he works in those that he's chosen. This is a difficult doctrine. And there's a lot of people that disagree with what I'm telling you. No, I'm not saying that. We, we Without violating our volition. Another thing that he does, he the Bible's clear, he convicts us of sin. In other words, he convinces us that we are sinners, and in need of his salvation, 
and he convinces us that uh, there's nothing that we can do to be saved. That's part of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So he does that as well, Mark. In other words, he convicts us. He also illuminates us so that we understand, oh, okay, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. And once we are convinced of that, it's on the basis of what God has already done to draw us, to work circumstances so we hear the gospel, be convicted by the gospel, be illumined in our thinking on the gospel. It's on that that we believe. And there's even passages that seem to indicate that God even gives us the faith to believe. Okay? Yes. Yes, he hates. He hates sin. So he's hating the sin, not Esau. Well, he hates Esau, is what the text tells you. That's not the right word. Yes. Right. Uh, well, I think I know what Glenn is talking about. It, it's when we hate it's sin. When God hates, it's not sin. I think that's the distinction that Glenn is trying to make there. Uh, God hates what destroys, and we should hate sin too because it destroys. In other words, sin is destructive and damaging. God hates whatever damages that that he loves. And all unbelievers basically are sinful and are in the process of destroying themselves and destroying others. So God hates that. And Esau is one that never responds to God. Okay? So, God would be perfectly just to reject all. And let's read 15.7. Get that one? And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Who did it? It's God. God takes the initiative. It's always God taking the initiative, and that's the historical incident. I, had God not revealed himself to Abraham, Abraham would have stayed in the Ur of the Chaldees. That is God selecting him, calling him out. And Abraham believed and left. Okay? Romans 9.11. There it is. It's not, and the doctrine of election, it's not based on what God foresees in us. In other words, it's not based on knowing that in the future we're going to believe. The only reason we believe is because God has already initiated it. Make sense? And that verse is still pertaining in the same context. It's talking about Jacob and Esau right there, verse 11 there. And this, it says before, they'd done any, anything good or bad. In fact, we have the prophecy, God announces it before they're born, that the older shall serve the younger. So God does, in fact, choose and select. And you ought to write down the Ephesians 1, 3, and include 4 passage. That's kind of the New Testament central passage on the doctrine of election. And I think it's very clear it specifies he chose before the foundations of the world. In other words, before he even created the universe, he already had you in mind, and the you is those of you that have trusted in Jesus Christ. I think you might be from five or possibly through five. Three is, praise be to the God, Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heaven, which is a blessing in Christ. Four says, for he chose That's it. Yeah. Okay, you see that? Verse 4 is the central passage there. 
But three kind of introduces it. So, uh, kind of the bottom line here is God's total promises are certain because he initiates them in eternity past, and history is just a record of God fulfilling all that he has promised, whether it be on an individual basis or whether it be with the nation of Israel. And in this case, when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about the nation of Israel. Abraham is also important in terms of justification by faith. So here we have two important New Testament doctrines that stem right out of Abraham. Justification by faith is forgiveness of sin. It involves forgiveness of sin. That's a negative aspect. And I'm not going to go over the book of Romans, but Romans kind of makes this clear. Forgiveness of sin is involved in justification. And what we mean by justification, it's a it's a legal term. It's a courtroom term, and when God justifies, it, you can think of a courtroom setting where we are standing before the judge of the universe, and the, the evidence is presented, and all the evidence says that we have violated God's standards, and therefore we are guilty, and we stand condemned for eternity. And in that courtroom, God has provided a way... In other words, the, the, someone has already paid the penalty of our sins, Jesus Christ. And therefore, God justifies us, or you might even say acquits us. Not because of anything in us, but based solely on someone else serving the sentence for us. Make sense? Now, there's another aspect of justification. There's another aspect. It's the forgiveness of sin. It's that negative aspect. In other words, you're guilty, but I'm going to remove that guilt. But justification is not just negative. It's also positive. And number two, it's imputing righteousness. That's the positive aspect. And what that involves is we have been given a new nature, a new capacity. That happens at justification. So when you think of justification... In that courtroom, not only did the Lord give us forgiveness of sins or remove the uh, the status of being guilty and condemned, he re- removed that, but he also gave us a new capacity to live differently. Now, we have the old nature still, so the Christian life is a life of allowing the new nature to dominate rather than the old nature. And it's always on the basis of faith. And Paul makes this clear in his argument in the book of Romans. In Romans 4, he uses Abraham as his prime example. And this is before the law. Abraham is justified by faith. Remember that passage? Uh, Genesis 15:6. we read it. There's two kinds of justification. There's positional. And by positional, what we mean is the moment we trust in Jesus Christ... Our eternal destiny is secure. We have total forgiveness of sin. And we are given a new nature. We are imputed righteousness. But there's also what's called experiential justification. This is what James talks about. Paul talks about positional justification. James is talking about experiential. In that, even though we have total forgiveness... 1 John 1, nine calls upon us to confess our sins so that we may be cleansed of our sins. 
That's on an ongoing day-by-day basis. Because of the old nature, we will continue to sin, so we have an ongoing dealing with sin, an ongoing forgiveness. That's the experiential aspect. And when we confess our sins, we are continually justified as well. So that's the experiential aspect. You see the difference between those two? There's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, we could go into the book of Romans. But what I want to do is just give you this introduction to it because it starts with Abraham and Paul's the one in Romans 4 that ties it in with Abraham. So two important doctrines that we find their source in Abraham, or at least the revelation. Fifth, Abraham is the key to world history. We've said that over and over. Abraham is the key to world history. And let me illustrate it. First of all, it begins with Abraham. It'll go through Isaac. Promise will go through Isaac. And the blessing will go through Isaac. Then through Jacob. Isaac, by the way, is less of a man of faith than Abraham. You already see the degenerating works of sin. The cycles of sin. Remember that? Yeah, by the end, that's why they got to have to go into Egypt, because God's got to preserve them by the fourth generation. So Jacob is a scoundrel, and Joseph is the only bright spot. He is the deliverer, because the nation is on the verge of destroying itself. So let's take a look at patriarchal history in relationship to this sequence here. Isaac, there's the verses there. I think I've got all these on your outline sheet, so you don't need to try to copy them. But let's go through a brief history of the covenant, beginning with Isaac. Well, we began with uh, Abraham. We saw chapter 12, where it's promised, and we have another promise given in chapter 13 as well. And it deals with the covenant, Abrahamic covenant. And then we looked at chapter 15, where it's instituted. We looked briefly at that ceremony that God enters into with Abraham, where Abraham's asleep, and God's the one that simply goes through the animal parts. And by the way, what that signified, those animal parts being divided, and God walking between them, what God was saying, if I do not keep this covenant, it would be like anyone cutting me in half, basically destroying him, and he's basically pronouncing a curse upon himself if he would violate the Abrahamic covenant. He's condemning himself if he fails to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So in chapter 15, it's instituted, and that runs all the way to verse 21, the whole chapter. It's confirmed. We didn't look at this passage, but uh, you can look at it later. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 21, it's confirmed. And it's also confirmed again to Abraham. Now, this is to Abraham in chapter 22, 15 through 18. So it's reiterated how many times in the book of Genesis? It's not in covenant form yet, but it's the seeds of it, one, two, three, four, five times. And then it's reinstituted under Isaac in chapter 26, verses 3 through 4. Let's begin with verse 2. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. There's the land aspect. Now in verse 4 we have the descendants. 
And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in those uh, couple of verses we have the, the land, the descendants, and at the very end there, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the covenant is reinstated or reinstituted Isaac. It's also reinstituted to Jacob years later. This is in uh, chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. Let me read the context here. Verse 10, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went to Haran. And if you look at uh, verse 12, skip to verse 12, And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then here's the reiteration in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. And your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. And you, you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the blessing of all of the families. So we have blessing, descendants, land. And in this case, instead of as many as the stars of the heaven, it says as the dust or the sand of the earth. Okay, see the reiteration of the blessing, reiteration of the land, reiteration of descendants, all in that passage. 35, you got it? 9 through 12. God appeared unto Jacob again. Jacob again. When he came out of heaven, Aaron and blessed him. God said unto him, It was Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob, but Israel shall be the name called his name. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, fruitful and multiplying, and the combination shall be of you, and kings shall come out of your wants, and the land will be of Abraham, not as if you, I will give you your seed after you. Okay, so you have the land there, you have the descendants, and two times to Jacob. You had to hear it two times. And then later on we have the incident where Joseph comes into play because the nation is on the verge of basically destroying itself. Well, they're not a nation yet, but they're a people. So there's a lot of time between the initiating of the covenant and the generations of the children of Israel. And this just gives you the patriarchal chronology there. And uh, in 1845 B.C., Israel is sent into Egypt. And that begins their sojourn in Egypt. And when we talk about Egypt, we'll also find out Egypt was the ideal place to preserve them because the, the Egyptians did not intermarry. They rejected other cultures. So the children of Israel would be preserved in a bloodline and preserved as a people to ultimately become a nation. But it's the story of Joseph, which is a story basically that begins in chapter 37, that shows that the 12 sons of Jacob are on the verge of destroying what God has in view for them. So that brings us to Joseph, 37 through 50. And by the way, I should comment in chapter 37, 
You might turn there real quick just to get a feel for what is about to happen to the nation. First of all, the sons basically are angry at Joseph. Joseph is the young one, and they plot to kill them, and then Reuben intervenes and says, it would be better if we make money off of him. So they sold him. So they sell him to this group of, I think it's Midianites, they're identified two different ways, but they sell him to the Midianites who are on their way to Egypt, so Joseph ends up in Egypt. And he's kind of sent there to rise to prominence so that he's in a position to be able to save his own people. So already there's problems within the family that the family is about to even kill one of their own. But instead they sent him off with the Midianites, and for all practical purpose, he's done. He's pretty much dead. In my exegesis and exposition of the book of Genesis... And there was no occasion in the life of Joseph, not that he was sinless, but there's no record of any negative aspect in, in his character. So I tend, because it doesn't give us that answer that you're asking, so I tend to hold that, that he was pure in heart in giving the revelation. And keep in mind, this is a dream, this is a revelation, so for him to just keep it amongst himself would have been selfish, you would say. So he had to reveal what God revealed to him, and it's prophetic, and it's it's revelation. So I think he was obligated, and I, I tend towards him being pure of heart in doing it. I just heard a couple of sermons yeah. from the other perspective. Yeah. It just didn't seem really right to me, necessarily. It didn't sit yeah. I was curious. And there's nothing in the text that indicates any attitude that he had. And he was the favorite, which kind of stimulates this whole hatred for him. And then they attempt to do away with him. And then in chapter 38, somebody, whose turn is it to read? Loretta, read uh, verse 1 and 2, 38. And it came about at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolphite. Adulamite. Adulamite, whose name was Haroth. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and her and in to her. Okay. Sorry to read an X-rated passage, but it's right there in Genesis. <laughs> what do you see in Judah concerning his character here? Lustful at least. But this is very dangerous because he is putting, we, we find out elsewhere in the book of Genesis, he will be in the line of Messiah. He is the one that will be in the line of Messiah. Or Messiah will be in his line, rather. And here we have intermarriage, if you will, or intersexual activity between Canaanites, the cursed people. So if you read chapters 37 and 38, those are dark chapters in terms of the children of Israel. So they're on the verge of losing identity by mixing with other cultures in terms of family. Now, 
she does conceive, if you read verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. But the point I'm making here is the children of Israel, this, this is God's people. This is his instrument that he's going to produce a nation and all the nations are going to be blessed through these people. Well, they're on the verge of basically disintegrating as a people, much less even becoming a nation. So the chapters 37 through 50 is a story of Joseph, and he's pictured as a savior of his brothers, of his family. At the end of the book, he's the one that preserves them. And at the end of the book, in chapter 50, in fact, we ought to read that one. Let's read the end of the book, because this is how it ends. Marcy, you want to look at chapter 50, just so we kind of get a feel for how it all ends in the book of Genesis. Start in verse 18 and read through 21. Then brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Okay, catch that? To preserve... So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them, comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Okay, that's how the book of Genesis ends, apart from some of the details of dealing with Jacob's bones, etc. But we have the salvation of the people, and basically chapters about 39 through 50 give us the process of God working through Joseph to get him to a position where he has great influence, and where he can work as basically almost a king and has the administration eventually of most of Egypt and is able to physically save his people and obviously spiritually as well. So, in terms of Joseph, we don't have a reinstituting of the covenant, but what we will see, and we won't look these up now, but when we talk about the next major event, we'll talk about the Exodus, I'll remind you that the history comes into play where God now, after all those hundreds of years, in Egypt. So this is the children of Israel, how they get into Egypt and how they're preserved, and God preserves them, you might even say, in the womb of Egypt to form them into a nation. And Exodus 2.24, we'll look that up later. Second Kings 17.15 basically looks back at the covenant and God is moving to fulfill some further stages of the covenant. And it's ultimately fulfilled, well, not ultimately, but uh, in large measure fulfilled in Galatians 3 in the New Testament. And you could also add uh, Acts 3, 25 through 26. Let's look at the Galatians passage because I think that gives you a clear picture of a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Mackenzie, read Galatians three sixteen. To who? What pro- promises? And even more than promises, covenant? made to Abraham and his descendants. Those are the parties. Keep reading. It does not say unto offspring, but unto many, and to your offspring, Christ. Okay. What he's doing is he's saying within the covenant is implied that there's going to be one particular descendant that's going to be a priority. 
Skip to verse 19 and read it. 319. Okay, the offspring would come about. Now go back, Holland, and read 6 through 8. Galatians 3, 6 through 8. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, reached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Fulfillment of the blessings through Messiah, salvation. Why don't you also read 14? So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might Okay, that goes all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 3. All the nations will be blessed, and they find their significant fulfillment in Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And the salvation we enjoy is as a result of the promise made to Abraham that he made into a covenant. See that? We benefit from the Abrahamic covenant. Because we are trusting in, in other words, the blessing of the nation of Israel provided for salvation of mankind through Messiah. And we enter into that salvation, and that's how we are blessed. Just to kind of reiterate how Bible history depends on not only the nation of Israel, but God is using the nation of Israel to effect the most significant things in history. So history is recorded by prophets. When we think of prophets, don't think of just Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. Don't just think of prophets in that way. Prophets in Scripture have a broader sense. Prophets in in the Bible have the broad sense of God revealing himself through the prophets. Uh, Moses was considered a prophet. He called himself a prophet. But the writers of Joshua, the writers of history, were prophets as well. Biblically, they're considered prophets. Because what they are doing is they are interpreting history. So they are the recorders of Bible history and interpreters of history. So First and Second Kings would have been written by prophets. First and Second Samuel by prophets. The historical books are written by prophets as well. So history, Bible history, is recorded by the prophets. The prophets record future parameters that deal with the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, dealing primarily with Israel, but also it deals with the nations. And if you read all of the prophets, you find out that there's a lot of prophetic material that deal with nations, Gentile nations. We could also say that history is a record of God's faithfulness. He has always, sometimes in the midst of precarious situations, he has always preserved the nation of Israel. The first precarious situation was the one that we just looked at in Genesis 37 and 38, where they were on the verge of destroying themselves. But he preserved them in captivity as well and brought them back to the land. And we could even say more recently in 1948, he brought them back in our time frame, basically. God has been faithful to preserve his people, the nation of Israel, because he keeps covenant. 
The Bible also, the history of the Bible is also a record of man's unfaithfulness. And in this case, particularly the nation of Israel. The reason they go into captivity is because they're unfaithful. And even when they are in the land, they are unfaithful. Most of First and Second Kings talks about idolatry, and that's why they went into captivity. Period of the judges, period of very dark time in Israel's history, where you see cycles of sin very clearly illustrated there. So it's a record of man's unfaithfulness. And even today, you would have to say, much of the Jewish people, not only in Israel, but around the world, are even atheists. A lot of Jewish atheists. And there's only a small minority that really holds strongly to Scripture. There's a hardness of heart there. Fourthly, the, the prophets announce judgment, and the judgments on Israel is are based on the covenant. We'll see more of this later on. They announce judgment based on the covenant. And fifthly, the prophets predict God's promises, and particularly towards the end of Israel's history, they predict things pertaining to the new covenant. The new covenant. So that ends our portion that deals with the exposition of the biblical passages relating to Abraham and the implications that we drew from what God is doing in the life of Abraham. And what I want to do is briefly, and I don't have a whole sheet because there's only a few things to mention here. This will be the apologetic portion where we defend basically what Scripture teaches. And in this case, it's not scientific. Well, most of the apologetics that we dealt with before were related to science and defended scientific defense of the Genesis Flood, Universal Flood, that sort of thing. Instead, what I'm looking at here is an apologetic in terms of history for Abraham and just give you a few examples. And there's literally hundreds of individual small examples. But the most prominent ones would be, how does God, and what I'm getting at here, how does God, in fact, perform historically in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant to bless the nations that bless Israel, and or to curse the nations that curse Israel. And it would at least begin with with Egypt, and we'll look at Egypt next next week, the nation of e- Egypt. The, the Exodus, we're going to see it as another judgment and deliverance. Judgment and salvation. The judgment is that God judges that entire generation of Egyptian nation. Now, they're not totally obliterated, they're not totally eliminated, but that incident of the Exodus is a judgment of the nation of Egypt. Make sense? And Egypt were oppressors of the children of Israel, so God is going to basically deal with them, judge them. They did not bless, except at the very beginning they blessed the children of Israel, but towards the end they were very harsh and they were oppressors. They received the blessing. When they were blessing Israel, they received prosperity. Yes. So, historically, Genesis 12.3 is fulfilled in Egypt, or worked out in Egypt. Assyria. Assyria was another persecutor and oppressor of Israel. In fact, the Assyrian people took the northern kingdom into captivity. 
And there's a lot of other detail we could talk about, but the bottom line is Assyria was destroyed by Babylon eventually. And the Babylonians took the southern kingdom into captivity. And I mentioned uh, Habakkuk with the dilemma, how could God use such a despicable people and so unrighteous people to judge his people, though they were unrighteous? God gives him an answer, but he also tells them that he will judge Babylon in due time. And in fact, the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Medo-Persians. So that is in some way a working out of the Abrahamic covenant. Antiochus Epiphanes, this is at the end of the Old Testament era, during the silent years, if you know that history. Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple, and he did all kinds of abusive things to Jewish people, killed many, but it produced an uprising of the Maccabees and eventually the diminishing of that empire as well. So another example from history, and these are just the major ones that I listed. The Roman Empire, they were persecutors of the Jewish people. They were anti-Semitic in many of the centuries that they were in existence. Tiberius, Roman emperor in 19 AD expelled all Jews from Rome. Now, God didn't respond immediately, but eventually, obviously, Rome collapsed mainly internally. There were also some external factors as well. In uh, 132, 132 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed many Jews. This is after the Bar Koba revolt of the Jews. And that was a huge massacre of Jewish people. Yeah, after the destruction of Jerusalem. And the uh, the destruction of Jerusalem also was by the Romans as well. And they scattered the Jews. But the final scattering was the 132 date. And eventually the Roman Empire collapsed as well. I think that is an example of the outworking of Genesis 12. In more recent time, the Spanish Empire... And I mention this one because they were some of the first to uh, come to America. They were a world empire. Spain was basically the world empire of that day, of Columbus and before. But Ferdinand I of Aragon and Isabella of Castile issued an edict of expulsion of the Jews in 1492. And it was persecution of the Jews as well. And eventually that led to the Spanish Inquisition, where 30,000 Jews were executed by burning. So all of this was in the time of Columbus. And after that, Spain has been pretty much a third-rate country. It declined after that, and I think that would be an example. Basically, Spain today is a third-rate country, on the verge of economic collapse even. And probably the most famous, more recent one is what Germany did with the Jewish people during World War II. The Holocaust, obviously. And Germany was essentially annihilated or destroyed, although not completely, after World War II. And they also are somewhat of a, maybe a second-rate country today. And these are just examples, and we can think of a lot of others as well. Attacks on modern Israel, and I'm talking about military attacks on the the modern state of Israel that was founded in 48, 
all of those attacks have failed because God is honoring the Abrahamic covenant in that he's going to preserve the nation of Israel and they're back in the land probably because God is on the verge of fulfilling some of the promises in that Abrahamic covenant. So just a few examples of the outworking of Genesis 12.3. Any questions on Abraham? That's Abraham.